Thanks for pressing play. This is Christopher Lockhead, Follow Your Different, the podcast for people who value real, different conversations. Conversations that sit at the intersection of how to have a legendary business and a legendary life. And on this episode, we have a conversation with the amazing Jennifer Tejeda, and she's the chief executive officer of a red-hot, newly public, $3 billion market cap company called PagerDuty. We're sponsored by my friends at Oracle NetSuite. Learn how to turbocharge the growth of your business and go from the garage to the IPO and beyond at netsuite.com slash different. All right, Jennifer. Um, she's an extraordinary leader and executive. Um, not only is she the CEO of this red hot company, PagerDuty, she's also on the board of Estee Lauder and her list of achievements is uh, truly stunning. And this episode is another great example of the power of a dialogue podcast, because the only way to learn from Jennifer, the only way to sort of get insights that you can apply to your own business and your own life from her extraordinary achievements is to sit down and have a real conversation with her. And um, that's exactly what we do here. And she's been in the media a lot. You've probably heard about PagerDuty. You've probably seen her on CNBC. But um, this is a different way to uh, to get to know her. And unlike a traditional interview um, uh, podcast, um, this is a long-form, free-form discussion that allows you to get inside her head and learn from her. I think you're going to love this episode. She's a very powerful executive. We touch on a lot of topics around how to grow a business, go public, what that feels like. In her case, how to take over a CEO from a, a strong founder and how to get that right and many other things. You can check out the show notes at lockhead.com and learn more about Jennifer there. And now, hey ho, let's go. Congratulations on a legendary IPO. Thank you. I'm still working on making it legendary. I mean, we're just getting started, but we, we are off to a good start. Uh, you are off to more than a good start. You're off to an amazing start. What, yes, was the, well, um, what was the IPO process like for you? It was really fun. And uh, people are, are surprised when I say that seemingly, because when we were doing diligence with other CEOs and CFOs who had been through it. A lot of them said, you know, it's a little bit of a death march. You know, the road show is really tough. You're juggling kind of two jobs for a period of several months. And so we were sort of hunkered down for this really horrible experience. And um, it probably helps that our CFO and I have worked together for more than 10 years. So we, we made a decision at the beginning that we were going to make it fun, regardless of uh, whether it was supposed to be or was designed to be, and uh, we succeeded in our mission. So we, I really enjoyed the process of being forced to refine our story and our value proposition for um, retail investors and lay people. I think that's been really good for our business, for us to have to go through that exercise. And we already run the business with a lot of operational rigor. So there wasn't a significant change in terms of our, our monthly drumbeat or our performance cadence. Um, I have to spend more time with investory bankery people than I used to. Uh, and I've learned to make that fun too. Uh, but it, for the most part, it was really great. And it, you know, it's very hard to describe the, uh, the, re the like intrinsic reward of looking down from the podium at the New York Stock Exchange at a group of people and just seeing this sort of wonderment in their faces that they just can't believe they somehow little old us got here. And that, you know, is one of the most rewarding moments in my career because a lot of, I think the thing we often forget is a lot of employees who don't have big titles, who, you know, aren't, aren't, aren't they're not making money that's going to change their lives, but they go through this significant milestone that they undertook a lot of personal risk to be a part of. And I don't think there's enough said uh, or uh, enough honor paid to the folks that bet their careers early on and take pay cuts and, you know, take on option risk to see a company through multiple investment cycles and growth cycles and ups and downs. And so uh, seeing that being part of that with them was, was really amazing. So you had some engineers with pretty big eyes that day? 
I did. I had engineers in ties that day, which is wow. also was also a first. <laughs> they really cleaned up nicely. Uh, and we didn't ask our employees to wear green. We just told them to, you know, dress professionally. And there were a lot of green ties and great socks. And but it was fun. Well, congratulations. I am always excited. I think it's always a, to me, a celebration of entrepreneurship when a company like PagerDuty goes public. I mean, I don't know all the ins and outs of your business. You'll share some with me, I hope. But I, I know enough about you and Randy and some of the other folks associated with your business to know that you guys have been working really hard at this for a long time, working on some very deep technical products, trying to solve some very big, very real problems in some very different ways and raising money and trying to create real value and sustainable, enduring things that matter. And so that day when you finally go public, that's a very big day. It is a big day. And I think it's also a day where it's sort of your coming out party to the world. One of the reasons we went public was to extend our reach to in, into what we think is an enormous market opportunity. And being little old paid your duty under the radar does not serve that big mission very well. So um, I think it was, it was nice to see the pleasant surprise when people understood the size and the scale of the business, the progress that we were making. And again, that our people and, and our community of users who have supported us could be recognized for the, for the progress they've made and, the, and you know, I think the, the business that they've helped us build. And it feels like, and congratulations on all that. I'm not surprised to hear it. You know, I think a lot yeah, of entrepreneurs you. forget that um, to me, going public is a, is a lot like sort of, uh, you know, leaving your home as a kid when you finally decide like, that's it. You're, you're going to fly the nest. Right. And uh, yeah, I, I often tell people when I came to pager duty, it was a bit of an awkward adolescent because the business was, I think seven, six, seven years old. It had gone through this amazing sort of early growth phase. Um, you know, much like a child prodigy grows up and, it was struggling with some of the awkward growing pains, you know, that you experience. And uh, the, the IPO was a little bit like leaving the house and going off to college, <laughs> right? And uh, we're going to have to live independently and do our own laundry and turn up to work every day. And they won't all be good days. And now when they're not good days, like we can't hide uh, under the snuggly blanket of the private market. It will, it'll all be out there, but I think we're ready for it. And, uh, and I think, our culture is ready for it, which is really important. How many folks do you have now, Jennifer? Um, we're approaching, I think we're around 600. Mm. What a fun size. It is actually. Uh, I still recognize most of the people who work here. I used to know everybody's name. Now, I mean, I increasingly have to ask you, like, do you, I do security checks by the front and the back door. <laughs> um, but uh, no, it's great. It's really great. Well, I'm excited for you. And I, I, I'm curious to get your take, you know, for, for quite a while there, um, it became not cool to go public in our world. And it, thanks to you and Zoom and a handful of others, I think Pinterest on the consumer side of late, and, you know, a handful of others, um, it has become cool. And in particular, in the enterprise world, I mean, we've had yeah. in the last year or so, I forget the number, but there was a wonderful article in the Wall Street Journal not that long ago about how many more enterprise tech companies have come public, Okta, a whole bunch of them. And so you are part of a new class of high growth, high impact category, kings and queens who are coming public. And do you think there's been a shift in mindset around uh, pr private to public? Or why do you think we're seeing so many enterprise uh, IPOs? Sure. I mean, I think one of the things that shifted companies to staying private longer was the the requirement to go public in order to capitalize the business went away because there was so much capital available in the private markets and it was getting easier and easier for entrepreneurs to raise very large rounds that um, they weren't, it wasn't, there was no forcing function like there had been historically to um, go out into the public market. And the secondary market has created opportunities for, founders and, and um, some investors to get some liquidity. So you also didn't have the liquidity, you know, requirement dra dragging people into the, into the public markets. But I think the companies that you mentioned, uh, Okta, Zoom, us, et cetera, 
we're going public for a fundamentally different reason, which is we serve the enterprise market and the enterprise market, they are members of the New York Stock Exchange. They are traded in the NASDAQ. They expect a level of transparency around our performance and how our capital is being spent in the long-term viability of our businesses. And it's part and parcel about joining the peer group that you or do, you intend to do business with in the future. Um, likewise, going public can help create quite a bit of brand awareness and credibility because you have to uh, jump through the the hoops or jump the hurdles to um, to demonstrate your viability long term as a public company and your ability to run and operate uh, a company with um, the amount of rigor that will serve uh, public market investors and. In my view, that rigor, uh, that uh, extra scrutiny is good for business and, and hiding from it in the private market uh, for just for the sake of staying away from that scrutiny is, is not a good thing because you can survive with poor habits for a long period of time if you are well-funded privately, whereas you know, you're not going to be able to hide uh, from, from kind of the leading and lagging indicators that the market can see when you're public. I mean, there's a downside to being public, which is you sort of there's a there's a tax on the CEO and the CFO. We have to spend some amount of time uh, managing the uh, the street's expectations, uh, getting to know investors and helping investors getting to know us. But in in a private environment, you're you're managing investors and board members uh, as well. And I do like uh, I like the way the free markets work to some extent. But you know. Ask me in four or five earnings calls how I feel. I, who knows? <laughs> well, again, off to a legendary start. And I, I think it's very um, uh, powerful. And I also I want to circle back to something you said a little earlier. Um, I have been, I'm going to use this word on purpose, angry at companies staying private for so long because of the negative impact of employees. You know, you mentioned these, these um uh, the term I liked for them was private IPOs, all this fundraising without going public. And sure, if you're the founder of the company and you raise a $200 million round uh, and you decide to sell you know, a small percentage of your ownership in that round to get liquidity because you want to buy a house or you want to do the things that we want to do in life, I, I understand all that. But to me, to the point you were on in the beginning, um, startups in our world ask employees to come and be entrepreneurial to take less a salary than maybe they would if they went to work at Facebook or Cisco or Oracle and to bet on the entrepreneurial dream sort of emotionally, intellectually, and obviously financially. And if I'm somebody that maybe could make, I don't know, $300,000 a year at Cisco, maybe I'm making $200,000 a year at PagerDuty, but I've swapped that for equity on the upside. But of course, if the company never freaking goes public, then I kind of get screwed while founders and executives are selling into these giant private rounds. And so I, I've just felt like staying private for so long in a lot of ways um, uh, breaches the sort of uh, uh, gentleman's agreement with employees that, hey, one of these days we're going to get public and we're going to get liquid and that's going to let you get liquid and you're betting on us, we're betting on you, we're in this together. And I think some of that got lost. Yeah, I, well, I think a lot of things get lost when you talk about the whole industry as an average, right? Um, and I think that it can be really misleading for employees, one, to feel any sense of certainty that a company will go public. If you look at the percentage of startups that ever uh, make it to that point, you know, it's less than a couple of percentage points. So, you know, one or two or maybe three out of every hundred startups actually actually gets to unicorn status, a billion in value, much less into the public markets. And so, you know, first, I think it's about being transparent and equitable about how we describe the mission and the potential opportunity for the business. So I think when you're bringing employees into an early stage company, you and investors for that matter, you got to be really honest with yourself and not buy in into the silly Kool-Aid that everybody's drinking that, you know, every company is a, is a, um, is, is a potential public offering. When I was looking for my next role before I took the PagerDuty role, uh, I looked at 50 different opportunities, 51 actually, and in almost every single one, the company was described as pre-IPO, which is sort of like saying every child is a pre-Olympian, right? I mean, it's, it's such a silly 
idea. And yet it's so well perpetuated that I think employees, particularly young, less experienced employees will buy into that and then feel very crestfallen and uh, somewhat, you know, um, uh, a, a lack of trust, I think, with their employers if that doesn't eventuate, when in actuality, the numbers are stacked against you from the very beginning. So most startups are not going to go public. They are going to find an exit in a different way or be shuttered or, you know, click along at a certain level. I also think that some, not every company um, acts in the way you described, for instance, where the founders and the investors can get liquidity, but the employees can't. And I felt very strongly about that. So when we raised our Series C, we did a structured secondary um, that allowed employees to sell some amount of their equity, their vested equity in the process because we wanted it to be equitable and we wanted them to get a sense of how that market dynamic worked. And we also wanted to keep employees motivated for what could come in the future if we doubled down and kept our, you know, pushed, put our shoulder into it and, and uh, kept creating value within the business. So I don't think you could kind of lump all these companies together, but I will say that um, I think when when you when you're interviewing employees, when you're bringing new leaders into a business, leadership should be really honest about what the future could look like. And when I got here, I I asked our our employees and our HR team to take out any language about being pre-IPO in our in our job specs and stop you know um, contributing to the hyper. Jennifer, you just went away. Jennifer, <laughs> did you hit mute? Did Putin get you? Can you there you go. There we Sorry, are. Sorry, Putin got me. My um my phone rang and I'm on Zoom and it it turned my mic off. I have to call Eric about that. Yeah, That's come on, Eric. I love Eric Yan, by the way. I'm a massive Zoom fan. I mean, As you am just I. saw me you saw me demonstrate my AV capability as the result of Zoom being so user uh, uh, friendly. And so I love that guy. We went public right around the same timing. We had our first earnings call on the same day. So I think of him as my best buddy in the freshman class of, of public companies. And have you met him in person? Many times, yes. Yeah. And they're pager duty customers as well. So we compare a lot of notes. Yeah, I, I love the guy. I mean, he, to me... He's everything that's right about entrepreneurship. And this is a side note, of course, but if my memory serves right, he was one of our very early kind of um, guests. I think it took him nine tries as an immigrant from uh, China to get here. Yeah. And I just look at the, uh, the immigration discussion we're having in our country. and Not that we shouldn't be having a discussion about the southern border or maybe even the northern border. Those Canadians are sketchy. Um, but... But, Be careful. Um, I got a lot of Canadians here. Hey, Watch I was born in Montreal. I'm allowed <laughs> to say that. So. Um, but the real question in my mind, of course, is how come it takes Eric Yuan nine times to get into our country? Yeah, it's, 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 uh, it's a pretty complex problem. But all I can say is I'm, I'm glad they made the right decision there because the world's, the world's a better place for the Eric Yuan. Yes. Amen. Hallelujah. <laughs> And so um, uh, remind me exactly how much money you raised in the IPO, Jennifer? We raised around $200 million. I'll use a round number. But yeah. Um, yeah, it was a good chunk. We had a strong balance sheet when we went out to the market. We had over $100 million on the balance sheet when we went out. And so, you know, again, like our, our intent was really focused on how do we um, demonstrate our credibility as an enterprise partner how do we put ourselves in our in a position to extend our reach as a company and as a brand? And uh, how do we ensure that we, we can participate in the community that our enterprise customers uh, spend most of their time in, which, which is the public market? Yeah. Now, it, it strikes me as an observer, as a sort of a keen uh, observer, that you <laughs> folks have done a, a very legendary job at both A, um, what I would call category design, mm -hmm. creating a niche for yourselves, driving demand into um, into your category that is sort of specifically oriented around what you do. I would assert you've done a great job at sort of moving the world from the way they thought about um, ops to the way you want them to think about um, technology operations. 
Um, and so on one hand, I think you've done a great job of designing your niche and category and positioning yourselves very effectively. As a result, you've created a lot of demand, uh, what I would call a from to, from the old way to the new way. And concurrent with that, which I think is really challenging, not, not only is that hard, way hard, but you've also been able to scale, deliver your products, build out your sales organization, your partners, hire people, open offices all over the world, et cetera, et cetera. And so I'm very curious how you think about, on one hand, positioning the company around sort of big ideas in the category that you've designed, and then simultaneously being able to scale into the opportunity and drive the kind of growth rates that you folks have been having. One of the things I think about all the time is our user, uh, and which is, I, I started my career in consumer marketing and sales and product at Procter & Gamble. And then I sort of stumbled my way into enterprise software in supply chain automation 100 years ago. And one of the things that I learned is, this was back before we talked about the consumerization of the enterprise and back before apps. But even then at I2, uh, one of the great lessons was that no matter how technical the buyer is or um, how many degrees a user has, at the end of the day, they still want the shortest distance between the problem that they're trying to solve and your product. And so the reducing the friction between uh, their problem and your solution, making it easy to discover, making it easy to use, make it easy for them to understand the problem is solved, that they've achieved value is really important. And note in that that I didn't mention a procurement person, an executive uh, you know, the the go-to-market motion, et cetera. So I think growth and scale starts with the product experience and the solution to problem fit. We often talk about product to market fit, but what I saw in PagerDuty when I joined the company was that they had found this horrible pain point for users and delivered an easy to implement solution for that painful problem that improved people's lifestyles, improved the, their working conditions, improved their ability to be successful at work. And then you built a product around that, right? And I think the minute that you get too far away from, am I still solving a really big pain point? Do I know who, who feels that pain? Who's in the hurt locker as opposed to who pays the check to get their people out of the hurt locker? And am I, uh, am I making it easy for them to, to apply my solution, right? And um, that's really kept us focused on everything from product experience to how we continue to reduce friction or go to market model, and yet at the same time develop relationships. It's, it's also um, influenced the way I think about leadership. And so, for example, when I came into the business, the, the, the natural playbook was, well, we'll just hire, you just hire a bunch of people who've done enterprise software really successfully. And it takes you about three minutes to realize that if you bring in someone who comes from perpetual on-prem, uh, sell top-down, big software platforming, all at Oracle or PeopleSoft, et cetera, and try and put them in a high-velocity land and expand model, if you let them apply their playbook, they will accidentally kill everything that's good about your business. And um, because, because uh, unfamiliar ideas are often met with contempt, it takes too long to convince these people who have successfully run these plays for decades that this new way of doing things is actually sensible. And you lose a lot of time and energy doing that. So we started profiling when we were building out the leadership team and, and building out the organization. We started profiling for the kinds of skills and experience sets and behaviors that would lend themselves to rapid learning um, the, the willingness to embrace a high-velocity, bottoms-up, uh, go-to-market model, uh, a, a support of a product-led growth environment as opposed to the sales-led growth environment, um, and the ability for someone to train their mind, you know, your Jedi mind, on, on the user problem set, not on the executive problem set. And that doesn't mean that that we don't need to have a value proposition for executives. We don't spend tons of time getting to know the leaders within our customer organizations like Eric or Rathi Murthy, who's the CTO at The Gap, has recently joined our board as a result of being a, a longtime customer of Pager Duty. Like it, but it does mean that you know where 
you know where the most important focal point is. And for us, that will continue to be our users. Hmm. And so the traditional enterprise software executive who grew up in the on-prem world uh, or salesperson or marketer or engineer, you, you, wherever in the company, not so much. Not so much. I mean, and arguably, I didn't make much sense for the job here. I think the only reason I did was because I have a big part of my frontal cortex that's consumery as opposed to enterprisey. And so I recognize some consumer fundamentals that I liked in the business that that had this unusual combination with uh, uh, something that I thought could be platform-esque because of the data that we collect and the way uh, we engage with customers. And so it's sort of kind of the perfect storm for me. So you said you earlier, you, you said, Jennifer, you looked at 51 companies. That sounds like a lot of companies. <laughs> it was a lot of coffee. A lot yeah. of coffee and cocktails were drunken. <laughs> yes. Um, and so uh, what, what lens, I'm very curious, what lens were you applying to these 51 opportunities uh, to say no to, you know, 50 of them and say yes yeah. to page your duty? So I, I probably would say my primary lens was I went, I've done a lot of M&A. I've been acquired a couple of times. I've made a number of acquisitions and um, I tend to be a, a bottoms up learner. I like to get down to the sort of fundamental core of something and understand it and then build on top of that as opposed to learn from, from the top down. And so I looked at every uh, business opportunity the much in the way I think someone would look at it if they were going to spend their own money to buy it. Because the way I think about things, I'm, I'm almost 49, which is now publicly available. So I'm just owning it. I'm almost 49. And I know how many years I probably have to work, like probably only maybe 51 more years. So I want to make sure that I'm going to make the best of it. And I think of my time as being highly valuable, much in the way I think an investor thinks about their capital. And so it started with the lens of, is this a business that I would buy, that I would go in as the primary investor and that I want to be a long holder in, right? Uh, because I've flipped a few companies. I've done lots of things in my career. I really wanted to find a place where I could make a home and build a platform and, and be part of changing the industry in some ways that are meaningful to me. And we can talk about that in a minute. Um, that meant I had to understand, you know, how big was the market opportunity for these businesses? Um, what did the customer look like? Uh, were, did the business have a unique advantage or a different way of solving a big and growing problem that lots of people had? And then probably the most important thing was are the people around this business people that I want to spend the next 10, 20, 30 years with? And at the end of the day, and this was something my, my dad used to say to me all the time, like, you're, you're only as strong as, as the weakest of the people around you. So surrounding yourself with great people is job number one. And that meant getting to know a lot of investors. It meant really understanding the motivations of founders. Because if you're a CEO, if you're a professional CEO, someone has to lose their job for you to get a job. And how that transition works is, is really important. Um, I think success factor or not. Um, and so it was, the lens was at a buyer. You know, what does the market look like? Very externally facing. Is there a set of problems or a big problem that's growing that a lot of people have that this thing uniquely solves? And, um, and yet, is there enough upside? Like, is it complementary? Is the opportunity complementary to my skill set? And, and, you know, to give you an example, there were some cooler companies that I looked at that were consumer. There are brands you would know of that I'm not going to mention um, that would have been far more interesting to talk about at cocktail parties. Um, but where I didn't think my skill set uh, brought enough compliment, I didn't see myself being able to add enormously different value. And in the case of PagerDuty, it was sort of, there was a really unusual situation in a co-founder who had been running the business successfully for several years, who had put his hand up to the board and said, you know, this, I think we have something special here. And I think if I continue to run it, it may not continue to be special. And we need to find someone to help me do that. And the natural next step in that playbook is, well, we'll go get a COO. And that'll be the number two to the founder. And Alex, to his credit, uh, I think, recognized and said to the board, if we do that, we'll, we won't get an A-plus player. Like an, a real A-plus player is going to want a CEO title, is going to want the top job. 
So I'm willing to give that up. When I heard that pitch, I did not believe it, of course. So it took me three or four months with Alex to test his conviction uh, on that front. And to this day, you know, I would tell you, he's, I just had a one-on-one on the phone with him yesterday because he's been traveling a lot lately and so have I. And I said, I miss you. I haven't seen you in a long time. He's like, yeah, I know, because he's been a terrific partner. Um, and I think he is one of the reasons we've been successful, not just the fact that he got the business to nearly 50 million in ARR and 180, 190 people, um, but that he had the humility and was selfless enough to put the company ahead of his own ego and his own you know, personal title and whatever else, uh, and then executed flawlessly in making room for me to come in and autonomously sort of take the helm and, and run the business. And um, you just don't see that happen very often. So I always tell, you know, all the employees know I feel this way. Like he, he deserves a debt of gratitude from all of us because any of us that are having a great career opportunity at PagerDuty in some way, oh, Alex, uh, you know, gratitude for that and honor. And also the other two co-founders, uh, Andrew and Bascot. I think it's really easy to forget, you know, when you got a 10 year old company, it's easy to forget that these are the people that slogged away and, you know, worked without a desk until they could afford one on Office Depot and lived out of, you know, with Andrew's mom cooking for them, you know, out of an apartment down south. Like everybody forgets that that happened uh, and instead is very focused on their own lot in life. And, um, and I think that's a really important part of our story and always will be. I love that you feel that way. And I'm, I'm not surprised that you feel that way. I want to go back. It's interesting because I think um, a lot of people really fuck up the way they look at opportunities. <laughs> I think they pick the comp package. I think they pick the, the sexiness of the company to your point. Yeah. I mean, how's, how cool is this going to make me look at the cocktail party yeah. um, and things along those lines? You said first, and you said it twice, actually, market opportunity. Mm-hmm. And then you said, is the company doing something different around a problem? And then you said people mm-hmm. and, and everything else. And so, you know, my and I woman, don't think I ever mentioned money. I don't I, like I and you won't hear me talk about it. Like I actually for me, it's how how can I have an impact on the community around me? So compensation came last, which, mm. again, I think is really important. And so how do you think about compensation if, you, if it's last on your list? I mean, it, like I, I grew up in pretty uh, modest means, sort of middle class, Midwestern, et cetera. My dad's Filipino and uh, I, could, I can live with a lot less than I have now. And so now the way I think about compensation is, does my record of compensation set an equitable marker or benchmark for other underrepresented people? And if it does, then I'm doing a good job uh, in helping move the industry towards equitable compensation as a female leader with a funny last name. Um, and I hope that that the value that I help create, that I lead an organization to create, that there's some reflection of that value creation in my comp package, but that is not why I'm here. And uh, and I, you can talk to anybody around, they'll tell you that that's true. Mm. Um, it, I'm here because of the people primarily. And the people, sometimes that's the users, like a I love getting out into our community and just talking to our users and sort of geeking out with them on what they do. And I have a lot of empathy. And they're kind of geeky folks, right? They're super geeky. They are super geeky. I mean, a lot of them don't really like people. So it's, uh, you know, you you see a lot of introverts and people who just want to engage with code, want to engage with the project they're working on, want to engage with products and, uh, you know, certainly don't want to talk to a, um, a, uh, an uber extrovert. So I have to be careful about how I engage. <laughs> but you um, said something about um, people who are underrepresented. What, what do you mean by that, Jennifer? Well, I think if you look around the market, there aren't very many females leading enterprise software companies. It's a very small percentage. And um, if you look at the tech industry in general, the, the number of uh, women and underrepresented people, people who are not of the majority Caucasian male um, way. You mean 50-year-old white dudes? Yes. As much as I love 50-year-old white dudes, there's a lot of them, relatively speaking. So I'm married to a nearly 50-year-old white dude, so um, I'm a fan. However, 
Uh, I'm a fan of building a diverse workforce that reflects the community we serve. And I think that as a leader, I and, and all CEOs have the responsibility to create access to what I think is one of the greatest industries in the world in terms of career development. Uh, and yet, you know, I have no business being in this industry. I have an LSA degree. I have a liberal arts degree from a public state school. Uh, I, no one taught me how to code. Uh, and, you know, I have no business running a deeply technical uh, enterprise software company. And yet <laughs> here I am and it's working out good. So maybe we should give other people like me a chance. Isn't that interesting? And uh, do you think it's um, do you think that chance is out there now more than it used to, or where where do you think we're at on the? You know, I posted this thing recently where I said uh, the new revolution is inclusion. I love that. I mean, I think the new revolution is inclusion, but it shouldn't have to be so revolutionary because um, if you just look at statistics, you look at what's happening in computer science programs, you look at the number of women and underrepresented people that are killing themselves to get educated and then not seeing the same access to opportunities in the tech industry, or they find an opportunity and they get into a tech company and then find no one they resonate with, find no one who looks like them, cannot uh, build a sense of belonging in those environments because uh, some some organizations have allowed a certain, certain cultures to manifest themselves. So I think we have a responsibility as leaders to not only uh, look to hire diverse individuals, but to build inclusive cultures that give every single employee an equal, and what we say here is an equal opportunity to kill it in their career. Uh, and it's hard to do that if your leadership teams look lopsided, if everybody on your board looks the same, if everybody in the competitive peer group within your organization, within your, your market looks the same, et cetera. And I think that we're making good strides. I'm glad that there's a dialogue. Uh, I'm glad that we're starting to see some um, input from government and from uh, governing bodies to try and drive a change in behavior. I wish that people were building diverse and inclusive teams because they understood it was the right thing for business. And uh, if we do nothing else uh, as a company, uh, in addition to creating value for our customers, I hope that we prove that inclusive cultures and diverse teams deliver better performance outcomes because that has been the case to date. So if I was somebody who was in a group, to use your phrase, that was underrepresented, and I wanted to break through. I wanted to follow in Jennifer's footsteps. Maybe I wanted to be a CEO or an entrepreneur or C-level executive. I, I look at your career and I get inspired and I go, how the fuck am I going to do that? What, what advice would you give me? Well, one, we are recruiting. Just send me an email at jennifer at pagerduty.com because, <laughs> because I am part of the recruiting team here. I'm recruiting 24 by 7. Um, but two is, you know, I think people have to open their minds about what a good career opportunity looks like. The, the path that worked for Sheryl Sandberg and worked for, um, you know, Eric Yan at Zoo may not be the same path that is going to work for you or for me. And so um, it comes back to like, find a company that is targeting a very large market full of big problems that that company is solving differently and a company that doesn't allow assholes in their front door. Um, because I think if you can find a kind culture that is truly oriented around customer problems, a lot of the noise will, will disappear. And the other thing I would say is don't, don't be afraid to be first. I was the only woman in the room, the shortest person in the room, the youngest person in the room many, many, many times over the year. And I think life is about choices. You can see that as a disadvantage and, uh, you know, get, get sort of uh, wound up around being lonely in that, in that crowd. Or you can say, like, this creates an opportunity for me to stand out, and I'm going to use that opportunity to gain responsibility, to, gain, to find opportunity. And so it has to be a little bit of both. And then surround yourself with great people. This like is my fascinating. mentors are cranky. What's that? that? I was just saying, like, my mentors are cranky and demanding. They're not cheerleaders. They're people who, like, call me on my bullshit. And uh, I think sometimes we think our mentors should be these like fatherly, motherly, you know, um, uh, nose wiping back patters and uh, make you feel good all the time. And I just don't see how you move forward if you're not putting yourself in a position to be challenged. 
It's interesting. Um, I just did an episode with uh, Randy Comazar. Mm-hmm. And he and uh, Paul Martino partnered on this new podcast, uh, uh, sharing all the learnings of Bill Campbell. Mm-hmm. Right, and, and Bill Campbell wasn't exactly <laughs> cuddly to a lot of people, was he? <laughs> totally, totally. And um, you know, I've had uh, mentors that have like I've called them up to complain and commiserate and like you know, vent. And instead of getting like, hey, it's going to be okay, like you can work through this, I get like. Hey Jen, put, just pull your socks up, get your shit together, and do what you need to do. And it's these three things, and like, stop your whinging, right? <laughs> and that's you know often the best advice that I get, right? One of my um, favorite expressions these days is "suck it up, Buttercup." Yeah, well, that my daughter has heard that um, several times. <laughs> and uh, remind me, you said that you're off. You were often the youngest person, the female person, and you also said yeah. the shortest person. Remind me how tall you are, Jennifer. I, I'm I'm five three and a half, and shrinking apparently. I was I was five five, but I've had two back surgeries, so I'm down to five three and a half. Hoping I'm hoping to maintain Holy around five shit, three. Two back surgeries, lady. <laughs> that doesn't sound like much fun. Well, I played golf in college and back in a day when they didn't have like physios and fitness people and trainers and dietitians working with the golf team. Uh, and and uh, I've spent the last 30 years trying to make my body ergonomically perfect for a commercial airline uh, economy seat. And I think uh, that's taken its toll. But I'm in great health now. And uh, my team's actually helped me to get more healthy. I had back surgery Basically, the day we filed, and you did um, not. I did. <laughs> wow, that sucks. Yeah. Oh, well, what should went, be such a went, fun day? It went really well. It went really well, and uh, and uh, and I just walk a lot now. I just did a couple one on ones today walking. So Max feeling good. Awesome. Yeah, should um, be back on the golf course soon. I'm glad to hear that. And are, are you must be a wicked golfer. Used to be. Now I'm just a washed up golfer who's only good with one or two clubs and the rest of it's a shit show i have a feeling that might be a slight exaggeration do you do you get to play golf with customers uh not so much anymore because a lot of our customers are technical users and they're not golfers they're into biking or hiking or uh something else i have a board member zach nelson is quite an accomplished golfer so zach and i get out every now and then and um some of our partners are into golf so i got to spend this weekend at the u.s open which was a lot of fun um, but I don't think that the market loves CEOs that have low handicap, which is a theory. Because <laughs> you have to well, play see, I was, was going to ask you, like, when low. you play with a customer, because, you know, obviously you're a great golfer. Do you ever worry about, like, beating the shit out of them on the golf course? And is that going to hurt business? Or do you, do you let them win? Or do you say, fuck it, I'm going to beat them anyway? <laughs> Dude, I never let anybody win. Listen. <laughs> if you and Zach are playing golf, if you can um, beat them, you're going to beat them. Oh, absolutely. And you know, if he's six, he's like six, three or six, four, like I'm going to hit from the ladies tees. I'm getting shorter. Like I gotta, (laughs) I gotta take every opportunity I can get. Um, (laughs) No, I usually do play from the men's tees when I play with people because it's just more social. I don't have to go off by myself and hit from a different place. Interesting. Now I'm curious to go back in time and, and go back to that CEO handoff. This is one, particularly for entrepreneurial companies, and it's true for all companies, CEO transitions are always super challenging. But I think there's an added dimension when you're taking over from a founder or a co-founder. Um, and getting that right, I think, is one of the hardest things in the life cycle of you know, the kind of world that you and I live in. And so I'm curious how, you know, you, got, you talked about building a partnership, but I'm curious if you could kind of unearth some of your learnings of how to, how to make that work. Yeah, and I think one thing is the chemistry has to work, right? Because somebody is essentially handing you their baby, right? They 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 had this dream, they built a company. That company has been literally and figuratively theirs for the better part of some period of time, and it's often five or six or ten years, etc. So it's a little bit like um, putting your child up for adoption. And then having to stick around and watch the new adoptive parent raise your child. So I think if you're a founder that's thinking about making that transition, one of the things you need to look for in a new leader is someone who acts like a founder. Someone who I, I call myself the refinder. Like 
I'm not so good in the garage. Like I haven't had a creative idea in a hundred years, but like, give me something that has all the right ingredients of, of scaling. And I, I can, I can pull that together and, and build and add to that over time. And I think one of the things that's really worked for Alex and I is I probably have a similar level of love and ownership and a sense of responsibility and empathy for the employees and the customers that uh, we engage with that he does as a founder. And uh, I certainly haven't been through all of the obstacles that he had to overcome to get the business to where it is. The obstacles are different and there are a new set of obstacles, but I feel the same sense of responsibility and accountability to people. And in, in some ways, probably a different sense because I know, like I, I've been in a larger company before. So I kind of, I have, I know what's in front of me. I don't have the benefit of naivety. Uh, I know what's coming. Uh, you know, they say ignorance is bliss. There's a reason that saying uh, was invented. And then I think the second thing is um, a real, a realistic sense of who's going to do what and how that transition is going to work. Because you know, those many opportunities I looked at, a lot of them were like, we want you to be the CEO, but the founders are going to own product and finance. And I would say, well, then that's not a CEO job. And I'm not looking for a COO job. I also think your new executive needs to be really clear about what they want in their role and what they expect and when they expect it. So I was really clear with people to the detriment of potentially not getting a final offer. I would say like, I think I think my calling is to be a CEO. I've been a COO. I was good at that, but I think I'm even better at being a CEO. And if there isn't a real CEO opportunity, I'm not your gal. Like I'm not your person. And I think the more upfront you can be about, and the more honest with yourself, you know, self discovery I think is really important. In this, but the more upfront you can be around your expectations and and how honest you can be about what you think is really going to work or not is important. And um, for me, owning product was a big piece of this. I I felt like if I didn't own product and I couldn't control the finances, it wasn't going to make a lot of sense. Um, I think for Alex, for the founder, you have to think about like, well, this change, no matter how the change happens, no matter who you hire, the change is going to be hard because you're putting your kid up for adoption. You're going to go through a grieving period. You're going to go through an identity crisis. You're going to go through a whole bunch of natural steps associated with making a life change that's as big, maybe bigger as losing a spouse, uh, moving countries, having a child, um, you know, losing all of your, your capital, right? So be ready for that and surround yourself with people who can help you through that. And if you're hiring somebody who you don't think is going to be supportive in that part of the process, then maybe you're hiring the wrong person. And then the last thing is have an agreement about tactically how it's going to work. So before I took the job, um, Alex and I and the board kind of worked out what the transition would look like, what Alex would do, what I would do, how it would happen, how we would communicate it, down to we scripted. We, we spent um, several weeks sort of positioning how we were going to articulate the transition to the company, to employees, to our customers. And uh, one of the things that was really important to me in that process was that um, we really ensured that it was a victory lap for Alex. Because again, you know, here I am three years later, and I just still think that Alex deserves a huge amount of benefit for the decision that he made. And so we knew, I know, you know, conventional wisdom is, well, a new CEO is coming in. That thing must be screwed. Like that thing's got to just be, you know, spiral to the bottom. Right. And so if you know that's what the general perception or conventional thinking is around a CEO change, then how do you think about the positioning to make sure that not only can you articulate the right story, but you can validate the right story? So we've, we were explicit and intentional around some of the data points that we shared around the size of the company and the trajectory the company was on without being, um, I think too audacious or um, operators of hyperbole, you know, and using some of the 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 same silliness that we see in the market to describe companies. So the other thing I learned when I was looking at lots of different companies is the way someone articulates the size of a company in this town is um, 
highly variable and very hard to pin down until you actually see board decks and income statements. So, you know, oh, we're on an XYZ run rate. Well, is that ARR? Is that net new ARR? Is that revenue? Is it cap? Is it non-gap? Uh, what's the growth rate? How low do is that a run rate for this year or a run rate for the decade? Like what, you know, because oftentimes the way a company was described to me on first pitch compared to what I actually saw in the financials, very different. It reminds me of that old Clinton saying, it depends on what your definition of is, is. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. <laughs> the other interesting thing about your transition with Alex is, you know, there are many CEOs who take over and the prior CEO uh, goes away or maybe is just on the board or is, 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 is non-exec chair, but no longer has a day-to-day anything that you might consider operational role. Uh, Alex is still very involved with the business. Yeah. He, and he has a role where, again, I think he can add unique values. So Alex leads our community organization. So he's responsible for our relationship with the developer and the DevOps community. He's spending a lot of time uh, within our customers on everything from evangelism to uh, walking through our product vision and our roadmap, et cetera. And he is a card-carrying and important member of the executive team, which early on meant he was the historian and the arbiter of all, all numbers and unit economics because no one had better pattern recognition for you know what the run rate unit economics look like in the business, so he could spot an anomaly faster. He would ask a hard question the soonest or the earliest, um, and he also was would be cynical when some new exec came in and said, "I'm sure we can do this. We can build something big. It'll be amazing." And he'd be like, "Well, wait a minute. I tried that four times, and here's what happened. So how is this different?" So also really helped me to screen. Um, you know, different initiatives that we looked at uh, early in my time here. And really, I under I learned the business faster as a result of of having Alex around. Having said that, if if it's not going to work to have the founder around because it's too painful for the founder and it's too hard for the leader and there isn't a sensible role uh, for the founder to play, et cetera, because of the split, et cetera, then then you can also agree to a situation where the founder is only involved at the board level. And that's okay, right? It's provided it's okay for both parties and you, ha- you, you have alignment around the expectation of how it's going to work. And I yes. think where these things often go sideways is everybody exchanges pleasantries and says, yeah, 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 it's going to be great. We're all going to be lovey-dovey, but they haven't really hunkered down in the detail of, okay, well, how's that actually going to eventuate? How's that going to work? What are you going to do versus what am I going to do? How's the transition going to happen? And I think that's why these things can sometimes be very, whatever the opposite of graceful is. <laughs> I think whatever the opposite of graceful is, is what I do surfing. <laughs> yeah, well, me too. <laughs> no question. I'm more of a paddler than a surfer, but I like being out there. I think they should rename the sport paddling because that's really what you do much more of. Oh, 100%. The 100% it's... of time that you're actually standing up on the board is glorious, but it's misleading. I think yes, I think it's misleading I advertising. <laughs> agree. Now, how do you think about the future, Jennifer? Look, I mean, I, the same way I thought about it ten minutes before we went public. <laughs> I actually, you know, this is a massive market. We we've measured our total addressable market, and we had to build the bottoms up because, to your point, the category didn't exist before we got here, and it's a twenty-five billion market billion dollar market just around our core offering for modern incident management. When you start to look at how customers are leveraging us across new use cases for real-time operations, um, unplanned work in different parts of the business, then we think that that market grows two or three X over time. So I still think that it's super early and it's nascent, um, both from a category perspective and in terms of our, our growth as a company and the opportunity for us as a company. And I think like like I did before, we've got a great strategy. We have, I think, a very good product that is continuing to uh, get better and more robust over time. Um, the single most important success factor for us is to maintain trust and that engagement with our user community and with our customers. And uh, we work very hard to to make sure that they they come to love us through the product, but they continue to love us because of the people. And I think that's one of the ways that PagerDuty is really special. Like you, 
you are not going to find someone at pager duty who doesn't care about your ability to be successful, whether you're a colleague at work or a user on our platform. And every person that you meet to a fault is going to constantly be trying to think about how we improve because it's in our, it's in our DNA. Uh, and, and I'm excited about the opportunity to continue to scale and grow a business and a platform that I do think is changing the industry. I mean, our leadership team is gender balanced. Our board is is nearly gender balanced. We have an odd number of people. So we have four men and three women on our board and some people of color. And we're continuing to expand that. Um, almost half of our uh, managers across the company uh, are female. We're very close to parity there. We've achieved gender pay equity within 1% job for job. And We've done all of these, uh, we've, we've operationalized all of this as part of building a highly performing company. It's not a strategic initiative. It's the way we do business. Uh, and I was just with our Array uh, Employee Resource Group yesterday, which is our employee resource group for uh, Black, African-American, and Latinx people. And you know, we were just talking about ways that we build networks and we create more access and we bring more allies uh, into the opportunity of creating pathways for underrepresented people to have great careers like we believe we have in the tech industry. I feel so fortunate and I feel like one of the best things I can do for um, people who haven't had the same opportunity that I have is to create ways for them to find those opportunities. And so we've done that by opening an office in Atlanta, for instance. We chose Atlanta because we know that that's a market where we can create access for people who otherwise uh, will not be introduced into uh, tech jobs. And um, I get a lot of, uh, I find that both challenging, but also really interesting and fun. And uh, it's, a, it's a good way to also help the organization learn with you about the richness that can come from working alongside of people who are very different from you. Well, and the interesting thing is when you first meet somebody, that difference might be apparent to you. But if you're a human being and you engage, that difference actually goes away pretty quickly. Totally. I, I mean, I don't think that my team runs around saying, yeah, I work for a woman. They're like, I work for Jen. She's crazy. She's, you know, she does this, she does that. But I don't think they think about my gender, my age or my background anymore. Yeah. And the other thing too, I think that's always important to me in these discussions is I believe deeply in a true meritocracy, not a rigged meritocracy. Yeah. And uh, hey, if you're a quote unquote, to use your phrase, an underrepresented person and you suck, you're going to get fired, right? 100%. It's not some free ride just because we don't have as many 100%. people with whatever your thing is that make like, that's no, this is no excuse for not like performing at a legendary level. Totally, totally. And likewise, you know, we're going to hire the best person for the job. All I insist upon is that the final slate is balanced. If the final slate is balanced, if the final slate has a mix of, of diverse and majority people on it, then pick the best person for the job 100% of the time. Yeah. Now, anything else you want to touch on, Jen, before we wrap? Well, this is fun. What took you so long? Why didn't we do this sooner? <laughs> I, I, I don't know. I, 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 you weren't returning my Where have email. you been all my life? <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. I don't know. I, as a matter of fact, I'm not, I guess I, when I saw you guys going public, I thought, geez, you and I connected so long ago. And it's funny, the ebbs and flows in life. I don't know why totally. we, we didn't end up doing some more things together back, back in the day, so to speak, but whatever. But um, here we are now. And Look, I just want to say I'm super stoked for you. I'm super proud of you guys. Uh, certainly give Randy a big hug for me. I'm always, I always love to see people that I worked with in the past who were, you know, Randy, of course, was a high potential uh, guy at Mercury and to see him with you and doing all this stuff. And so I just want you to know, I, I'm really proud of what you guys are doing. I think you guys represent our industry really well. You're clearly creating lots of value. And I'm I'm just stoked for you and, and I really appreciate you willing being willing to spend some time with me. Well, thank you. And I, I will tell you, I read your book. I remember when you wrote the book about creating a category. And I remember thinking, God, why didn't I write this book? This is really it's a really good book. But I mean, I think I think that people can't underestimate like not everybody should build a category. Not everybody should try and redesign a new category. Uh, and I think there are a lot of people who say, Oh, it's a new category, but all it is is some new marketing buzzwords. You really have to understand 
the opportunity and the market and then plot out what it's going to take to be successful in that market. Or you run the risk of really just overcomplicating a product that might already be working really, really well. And the the last thing that I'll add um, is that while we are having, I think, a lot of success right now, it we didn't have a podcast about all the things I screwed up. And I think some of the best ways you learn a really important lesson is the hard way. And yet I we talk a lot about failing fast, but I don't think as leaders, we talk as much about um, hard lessons and making sure that we celebrate each other's hard lessons so that we don't repeat those mistakes again, as opposed to like brushing them under the carpet and being ashamed of them. Uh, it's more building on them. And I think one of the reasons that we are having a lot of success at Pagery is because we have a lot of leaders who have suffered some hard lessons. Like there's, there's plenty of dents and, you know, uh, broken fenders and, and people who look tired running around this joint um, because we're pretty, we're pretty battle hardy, let's just say. Yes. But I think that's also what makes us, it's what makes us a great team. Yeah. Uh, I once said you can't be a legend without being a loser. 100%. 100%. And, but, you know, if you're going to lose, lose in a sporting way. And so, you know, you got to, now I look back on some of the things I screwed up and laugh my ass off because if I knew then what I know now. <laughs> it was Woody Allen, Jennifer, who said that um, um, comedy is just tragedy plus time. Yes, exactly. <laughs> and we often say around here, like, if you didn't, if you don't laugh, you might cry. And better that we laugh at ourselves than, than somebody else laugh at us. I yes. think it's a lesson to not take things too seriously. But thank you so much for having me today. I really appreciate it. Jennifer, you're awesome. You're an inspiration to many. I hope, I wish you uh, and the Pager Duty team many, many more years of category queen dominance. <laughs> well, thank you. And I hope you'll come by and visit us. We'd love to have you. I would love to come by. Just invite me. Oh, I'm on it. Uh, All right. I'll talk to you soon. Thanks, Chris. Thank you, Jennifer. I appreciate it very much. No worries. See you later. There she is, the incredible Jennifer Tejeda. I sure hope you loved that conversation as much as I did. And um, uh, I just want you to know how much we appreciate you sharing this podcast. Uh, 80% of our uh, listeners in a recent survey said they heard about us from a friend. So I want to thank you so much for sharing, sharing this podcast. Now, speaking of sharing, I want to share with you something about my friends at NetSuite. NetSuite is the platform for growth. And um, about 65% of the uh, tech companies that have been going public in the last little while run NetSuite. And that's because NetSuite allows you to scale from the garage to the IPO and beyond. And NetSuite is a single platform for running pretty much every part of your business from sales, order management, inventory, uh, AR, AP, all the good accounting stuff. And so uh, NetSuite really allows you to replace a ton of other systems. And if you're starting, it allows you to start with a comprehensive platform that allows you to battle the challenges as you grow uh, from scaling to dealing with different countries and currencies to building an omni-channel business and so forth. That's what's made NetSuite so powerful. NetSuite is offering you as a listener to this podcast, a free one hour growth review with an expert in your industry so that you can sit down, talk about opportunities, talk about challenges and talk about ways to overcome them. Check out NetSuite.com slash different today. All right. We would like to thank the good folks at PagerDuty. You can check them out at PagerDuty.com. Real time operations made simple. My friends at the Mission Daily your dose of daily news that matters a great newsletter and a great podcast network that uh, we're doing more and more with so check out my friends at mission.org today to get your daily dose of awesome Uh, my first book play bigger how pirates dreamers and innovators create and dominate markets check it out at amazon.com or wherever you pick up legendary books my friends at OneLifeFullyLive.org. This is the nonprofit helping you dream, plan, and live your best life. Check out the number one, LifeFullyLive.org. A podcast that I love with industry luminary, tech industry guru, Bob Evans, Cloud Wars Live. I'm a regular guest once a month on this podcast. We have a ton of fun. Bob's a super smart guy. Uh, wherever you go for podcasts, check out Cloud Wars Live. 
Now, are you feeling uh, whelmed? Overly, that is? Is it time to get some help and figure out how to scale yourself? My friends at Bottleneck Virtual Assistants can help you and free up the most valuable thing we all have, which is time. Check out bottleneck.online today. And I also want to tell you about my friends at Rollworks. This is an account-based platform for ambitious B2B marketers so that you can choreograph high-performing digital campaigns. Um, check out rollworks.com and the amazing folks at donorschoose.org. This is a nonprofit helping you make a difference to teachers and students in the classrooms that need it the most. Check out donorschoose.org. All right, I need to remind you that today's podcast is the sole property of the Lockhead Oddcast Network. All rights do remain perturbed. Uh, we must warn you that this podcast is clearly created in a studio that does contain nuts. It is produced by the legendary Jamie J and Sarah Knox, edited by Mike D. Show notes by Diane Gervasio. Newsletter by Karen Onahog. Analytics by Roanne Noah. No, Nostros. Jeez, Roanne. <laughs> Sorry. If you're going to have a podcast, learn how to talk. And hey, thanks Sherwin Amel for uh, doing an amazing job on our website development. Uh, teach entrepreneurship. I don't feel tardy. Never shower alone. Remember to only buy pasture-raised free-range eggs. Even if it says cage-free, that doesn't mean they're in a pasture. You want happy hens because happy hens make happy eggs, and you want to only put happy eggs in your body. Thank you, Candy Dandy. I love you, Mom and Dad. And hey, Colin, this oddcast really ties the room together, doesn't it? Today, our deepest apologies go to Richard Smith, former CEO of Equifax. Sorry, Dick. We just ran out of time for you. That's it. Thank you so much for investing part of your life with me. Stay legendary. And until we're together again, follow your difference.